the theme for the afternoon talk is the accommodation of separateness. As we all know, during the days that we have been sitting here, there is a, a currently a war taking place, a war which is taking place in uh, Iraq. Some of you, while sitting here, and perhaps uh, a lot of us, from time to time have been wondering what is happening, what is going off, on in that uh, particular land. <coughs> and for a few minutes each uh, day at 8 o'clock, I've listened to the radio and listened to the news on Radio 4, BBC Radio 4, for 5 or 10 minutes. And of course, with news, and you see here speaking as an old news reporter from years ago, it's not always so easy to get a, a clear sense and a clear perception of uh, events which are taking place. But in a general uh, view, may be correct, may, may not be of course, is that it seems that this uh, war could go much more into the longer term than in the short term, <coughs> as we had been told and as we had been led to believe. And what seems to be happening at the moment is various uh, fights or skirmishes in and around the cities that the US-UK forces have not been welcomed with open arms, have not been welcomed as uh, liberators at the moment, and have been treated as invaders. The bombing still continues. The deaths on the Iraqi side, of course, both uh, soldiers and civilians still continue, and there have been a number of uh, relatively small, but of course tragic, number of deaths of US-UK forces, often from what is termed friendly fire, meaning mistakes, and also a number of journalists also uh, have been killed as in the same, same way. The United States President has asked the Congress for um, some $75 billion to help support the war over the next six-month period. So the general perception, conception, is that it will be more in the forms of guerrilla warfare in and around the towns and cities of Baghdad with the bombing taking place as well. And this information will be coming to an eye in various ways, often whether we like it or not. From day in, day out, week in, uh, uh, week out. And I think it's one of these uh, painful and distressing situations which easily can lead to feelings of despair. Despair for decisions that are made, despair for the consequences uh, of it, and despair inside of ourselves, the feelings of helplessness that may arise. <coughs> and there's an important theme and practice with all of this, and that is, what are the ways, how can we intimately transform despair into empowerment? 
how, how can we respond to these situations? And sometimes when we look at the uh, out, outer situation, for some, the wise, wise decision is in fact to live one's life with others as well and as lovingly and as caringly and as supportively as, as possible. Some people are, and each person must look to herself or himself with regard to this. Simply do not have the, the resources, do not have the knowledge or the skills or uh, the way in, in terms of engaging in anything that you and I might call political. And sometimes we do have to be honest with ourselves and clear with regard to ourselves. And it would be a pity for us if there are these sensitivities of the heart, if there are these deep concerns, then the outcome of these concerns is a feeling inwardly of despair and the helplessness that goes with it. And so that response of, of endeavouring to keep ourselves as clear as possible in terms of these situations, and there would be some, and there would be some of us in this room and uh, elsewhere who do as much as possible wish to engage in some kind of constructive engagement rather than a destructive one, to engage in some deep concern which starts to bridge this terrible alienation and separation and try to see what is in common and develop and cultivate that. And therefore, for some people, and it will be a minority, but for some people, there will be that form of empowerment, that form of, shall we call it, political engagement, based on the primary intention to resolve suffering and all the causes and con conditions. If one knows one's leaning, one's, as I say, one's tendency, one's being, um, is not that way uh, in inclined there, then do be mindful, do be careful of absorbing too much painful information. Do be careful of when reading the newspapers, listening to the radio, watching the television. Because this information with war is constantly distressing, it's always distressing. It's always the ugliest thing that human beings have to hear and, and know about, even when we're not actually in it directly. And that will require from us, both here and elsewhere, some important way to keep the heart clear, to keep the inner nourishment uh, alive. And what matters very, very much in all of this is the exploration of ways, when we are approached, when we do think about, what ways do we think about this? And is our thinking, and are the feelings that go uh, with it, feeding the division? feeding the intensity of patterns of being for or against. And that, and that can show itself for or against in any kind of way. And it would be a, a pity for us if we kind of relied or became dependent on um, old patterns, old conditioning, old views, which just reinforce this constant nightmare of, of situations around and in our life of living in division. So part of practice, part of going uh, deeply into ourselves and in the exploration uh, of, of what that means is an inquiry, is a meditative awa awareness, is, is 
can I experience, can I sense the interconnectedness? Can I sense life in an interdependent kind of way? And I have to meditate on that, I feel. I, I feel we have to contemplate on that. I have to have, a, have some feeling and sense because perhaps my old mind in its for and against mode is not healthy, it's not skillful and there's in fact something false about it and that inhibits and prevents us from having new ways of understanding new ways of uh, new ways of relating some of us, whatever that for and against may be some of us feel, and I feel appropriately so that any kind of anger, any kind of anger, including the self-righteous anger, including uh, uh, the anger of um, uh, any <coughs> aggressive form, why do they do this, or why do they do that, whoever they are, it just only feeds the anger which is already in the world, which is already out there. And, and therefore, it's spiritual awareness and spiritual practices keeps reminding not only ourselves, but also keeps reminding others, others as well, to, others as well, to find some other way, to find some other way to look at situations, to find some other ways to uh, relate to each other. And these larger international situations that arise can be some kind of mirror or reflection of conflict in our own lives. How in our own lives we can be in a state of division and in a state of uh, division we easily we grasp onto ourselves and hold on to that at the expense of in reaction to and that duality gets magnified and magnified and we forget that the spiritual teachings and practices are a pointer uh, and a very clear reminder to us towards an understanding in which is non-dual not separateness not division not this fragmented way of looking uh, at, at existence but one which is working as much as possible to help look at things in a not from a non-dual position and that's an enormous challenge because as I said earlier the old mindset that we've been brought up with is riddled with identity, riddled with clinging and holding and uh, forms of grasping that cause that reactivity. All of this is an important aspect and feature of our time, our hours and our, 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 uh, our days uh, here. <coughs> In the teachings that some of you will be uh, familiar <coughs> with the uh, concept called metta M-E-T-T-A it means friendliness it means friendship it means kindness it means uh, love and <coughs> it's an extraordinary thing for us that when we're looking into ourselves to see whether it's possible for us about whatever it is to see if there's enough empowerment within ourselves to actually change the view inside of ourselves to change the feeling realm inside of ourselves that what comes out of ourselves is much more kindness and love and connection 
And one of the great teachers of this transition from despair to empowerment, uh, jo- Joanna Macy in the uh, uh, larger Buddhist network, for many, many years has been holding these uh, workshops. And one of the important features of the, of the workshop is to help those who feel stuck, who feel weighed down. It doesn't necessarily mean political or globally or uh, ecologically, but also sometimes in one's own circumstances of one's own life. And using resources, using ways and means to move and shift something. Because sometimes in, in life one can wake up as people report here, just wake up first thing in the day and feel some despair, feel some uh, uh, heaviness, feel the weight of life, personal life, international life, or whatever it might be. And when that weighs, it's like a weight, it's like a substance on the consciousness. And what happens, it's, it's almost material for us, and in its weighing on the consciousness, the consciousness feels weighed down. And anything in life, anything that happens to us in the, in the journey of life, anything can build up for us. And quite often, we're hardly aware, we hardly notice, even though there are many signals, even though there's lots of indicators to take note, to be more aware, we rather neglect, we rather ignore. And as a result, there's a gradual accumulation of impact upon us. It could be about anything. And if we're not conscious human beings, if we're not awake, if we're not aware, this gradual uh, build-up begins to take place and then it kind of, uh, uh, in Latin, Buddhist language, it becomes a karma which bears its fruit. And it bears its fruit on top of the consciousness. And so the consciousness feels weighed down, it feels depressed, it feels unhappy, it feels uh, a state of despair, whatever. And how easily, of course, understandably, we then identify with, with this. And so we start looking at, at the world around us through these eyes, trying to look at what's going on in the world through our despair, through our unhappiness. And this isn't an easy task, but it's an important and challenging one for, for us to develop and cultivate the resources to ensure that that weight of that doesn't just descend upon us uh, in the way, <coughs> pardon me, in the ways that it can. And sometimes, as some of you, some of you report, sometimes it doesn't take much to start moving it. It might take just a few breaths. It might take just moving the body. It might just take dancing. It might just take out writing out what one is feeling. It might just take a little while of really looking mindfully and using the power of the, of the meditation to start moving things. It might take a communication with another person who is supportive and friendly and and loving to touch a warmer place inside which lifts the spirit, which lifts one out, out, out of it. And the earlier that, that you and I can catch this, the better it will be. Because when, when in situations where there is so much pain, day in and day out, on the front of our newspapers, 
and in all the television pro in all the news television programs, in the radio programs. We've got to stay very clear. We we have got to be very mindful. We've got to be very conscious. Am I absorbing this? Am I internalizing this? Am I putting myself under great pressure and great strain? Not rapidly and quickly, but often like war itself, long, painfully and, and drawn out. And one's heart gets stressed and negativity set in. And when that happens for us, in all the painful ways, it, then it isn't just about war, painful and, and tragic as it all is, but the effect of the feeling negative, the effect of feeling um, impacted upon in this way, then runs into many other relationships, into friendships and loved ones and, fa- and family and, and our connectedness with work and with life and with nature. The, the feeling of being weighed down because of what one's learning and hearing about in the newspapers impacts so pervasively over so many people it starts to run everywhere and then everybody suffers the suffer in the US, the suffer in the UK of course, terrible suffering in the Iraq and, uh, and elsewhere as well so some, somehow all of this work and practice that we are doing is an appropriate and I feel rather proper practice for us to really deepen our, deepen our practice and then have the capacity to know ourselves well enough what's a right amount of attention to what's an appropriate amount of time say to talk about or reflect about if I'm going to be informed and that's as it were breathing in a lot of what is taking what I'm hearing, reading and seeing and talking about. Am I finding ways to breathe out? Am I finding ways to respond? Or is it that I'm just taking in? If I'm just ta- taking in, it will be painful and it will be painful in many, many ways. It will become pervasive. And these kind of awarenesses and uh, re- re- reflections are the same um, matter and the meditation is intended to keep us rather steady in all of this. Please take good care with your inner life. In the um, tradition, in the practices, there's a great deal of uh, emphasis on uh, the loving-kindness. And it's not that many years ago fairly understandably, that the uh, we pass in our world, not only uh, in this tradition, thank goodness, but uh, in the wider traditions of the our world, one of the popular one-liners or criticisms of it was, uh, oh, it's terribly dry. Dry meaning just sit and watch the breath. Dry, just experiencing body sensations dry, just see thoughts with monotonous regularity come and go and sometimes people think well let's is it just about that if I do that will I become a fully enlightened uh, creature for the, and save all sentient beings and there was a feeling and a little bit there's a long historical aspect to all this which I won't go into 
but sometimes the feeling it can be somewhat isolated, somewhat alienated or cut off from. And not only cut off from the heart, but cut off from what's around. That rather than the Sangha meeting together in practice, it was often felt, and it was certainly quite often commented to me, it wasn't the Sangha, that means men and women of practice, it wasn't the Sangha meeting in practice, it was a bunch of individuals coming to meditate for their own good and uh, leaving afterwards. And one of the aspects which helped to change all of this was the uh, cultivation and the development of loving-kindness meditation and the loving-kindness meditation serve as a ways and means for the heart to extend itself to those near and far. And some, and some of you here, have uh, engaged in for some time regularly these kind of uh, practices. And one of the functions of these loving-kindness meditations is, re- is to point the way once again to a more non-dual understanding means less separateness, less of the gap. Just like when you get off British railways or the underground station, the best mantra in the world, mind the gap. We've all seen it, we've all heard it, mind the gap. And in any kind of fragmentated view, any kind of uh, divisiveness in the us and them fragmentation <coughs> there is a gap in that gap so much can come how reactive we can be how irritated we can be how annoyed we can be how much fear projection we can put into the gap. So there's a, there's a feeling of a gap between me and other, or us and them, what, whatever it might be. And, so, and in that existence of that gap, through the alienation, all the stuff comes in. All of it. Could be with regard to what has happened, what is happening, or what might happen. One of the important features of uh, loving kindness, of deep friendship, uh, uh, of uh, metta, is uh, a resource to help bridge the gap. And if we bridge the gap, we dissolve the gap. If we dissolve the gap, we dissolve the us and them. When Ananda went to uh, spoke, Ananda was a, the Buddha's long-standing friend, his cousin. Yeah attendant in his latter years said to him very famous one line when we uh, in the spiritual life when we engage in our commitment to the spiritual life isn't half spiritual life lived for friendliness to be friendly for friendship isn't half of it and the Buddha promptly admonished uh, rebuked Ananda and said don't say that Ananda don't say half or of it or of it and it's a kind of reminder one of those uh, one liners which uh, for some of us is such a kind of strong place with us all of it lived and, it's got, and there are two important features of this uh, 
of this uh, kindness. One is we're extended our limited self. We're opening up the self. So instead of having, I'll be kind here, then I'll be a bit less kind here, and then I'll be not kind here at all, then I'm going to be really unkind here, da, 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 and have all these lines of how far I'm willing to let my kindness go before I hammer them, or whatever it might, whatever view we're dreaming up on the cushion, that the intention and the practice and, and the exploration of kindness is to extend it into the region where usually it doesn't go. And therefore, the Buddha's comment there is to go from what is measurable and the word to measure in Sanskrit is maya to go from the measurable, from measuring and all the limitation and the falseness that goes with it to exploring the kindness of life to making it immeasurable no measurement to it not easy not easy I'm sure you and I either in our personal life or if you're on fantastically good friendship with every human being you know all credit to you or to people that we don't know but somehow we're not enthusiastic about I leave you to throw in the names <laughs> we all got them but <laughs> it's not too difficult that sometimes the change and the transformation of the uh, perception the way of uh, looking if one senses that it's the gap there doesn't mean to say we submit doesn't mean to say we subscribe doesn't mean to say we identify with but is there a possibility of somehow heart opening up to make it much more immeasurable and therefore having the opportunity to go into areas where it's usually it's alienation and to make the transformation from alienation to connection tremendous thing to do tremendous thing to do sometimes we say oh, I should meditate on this oh, I should practice this when the, uh, the rabbi from Nazareth says uh, love thy neighbour I think he means what he says it wasn't just, well, what a great one-liner, we'll carry that for the next 2,000 years. He meant it. Sometimes we ask, who is our neighbour? He said, love thy enemy. Who is thy enemy? Somehow, that's going from the state of alienation to the state of connection. What's going to help us do that? What's going to help that heart expansion open it itself, itself out into areas where usually it just has not gone, perhaps never? Never. Or, in some cases, for us, 
it started off like that full of love full of friendship living in heaven with someone connected with someone or whatever full of love and kindness and approval and support and then sometimes gradually it it turns around the other way and then there's nothing but anger, rage, hurt, disappointment and the old favourite, blame how is it that the heart made these shifts and when it, sometimes when it ends up as blame we can't sense and we certainly we can't feel any genuine love and just as we can make this downhill journey from heaven to hell from love to blame is it possible to make the journey back again do we have that power could we cultivate that could we shift that sometimes people on retreat come and they say to me they're sitting in their meditation <clears throat> or walking or whatever spending the day here and then like a cruise missile up comes the old rage towards some poor sod on this planet it's on the receiving end of it there, there, there whoever they are might be here might be some other place yeah. and then teachers will may say develop some loving kindness I can I don't have to look I don't have to be very clear minded I can feel the resistance you wouldn't say that if you knew this person (laughs) (laughs) and so the mind it's got its belief it's got its separateness it's got the gap and it wants to keep it oneself the authority of oneself begins to depend on the alienation but just as that negativity goes there just think what it's like inside of oneself at the same time burning up inside negativity inside anger inside What's it's a horrible feeling to be living and one is saying to oneself I, don't, I want to keep this I want to go on making myself miserable because of another what? we are weird <laughs> weird we are as a species the Buddha, once a person came to the Buddha making all sorts of um, uh, accusations uh, to him and this was uh, uh, around um, uh, um, unethical behaviour and all these, ac- and these accusations were being uh, 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 thrown at, at him the Buddha's response uh, to it was if somebody gives me a present and I decide not to receive it in whose hands does it stay? 
I said, it's a good one. <laughs> Someone gives me a present and I say, no thank you. With whom does it stay? And I think sometimes with us, when the negativity comes, or the blame comes, or the reactivity, and we all have to deal with this in a whole variety of uh, ways there, can we keep like a, uh, as a kind of unstoppable flow, it's a huge challenge for us in terms of immeasurability, keep with the friendship, keep with the kindness, not think to blame. And that comes for us because we practice it. It comes for us when we don't need to practice it. I remember in the monastery, we had a, an, an American uh, lecturer come. And I, I actually had a rather good letter this morning, I, I have to say, I must tell a little story. I might forget the lecture, because this one's better. I had a letter today, of a letter of apology today, from something that happened concerning my poor self, or as I prefer to say, my poor non-self. <laughs> <laughs> Easier that way. About something that occurred in 1985. Remember 1985? Or 19, yeah, 85, 86. And at that time in Totnes, I was a member of the Green Dilemma. God knows why. But anyway, <laughs> a, member of the, a member of the Green Party and had joined in 1980. And on April the 26th, I think 1986, there was this terrible uh, uh, tragedy at Chernobyl in Russia. You remember that the, the nuclear power station, that the reactors burnt out, and terrible, terrible cost. And one, one, I must say this, one man in a helicopter on Russian men. I call him out the first ecological saint. This is my perception of this man. That in the midst of this, took his helicopter and flew over the Chernobyl where millions of degrees of radiation were pouring out and he was warned if he goes near that, the radiation, that he hasn't got a chance. It's just there. And he said, someone has to try to, to try to stop this and use the chemicals to try to and drop the chemicals on the power station to try to slow down the nuclear reaction that was going on and the overheating there. Knew, knew, knew that it was certain cancer for him and kept doing it and kept, kept doing it and uh, a few years later uh, he died. And at that time, I... Uh, <coughs> were so uh, shocked, like many of you here, I'm sure, really felt that our Earth was very vulnerable and some action had to, to be done. The outcome, a little bit long-winded, be patient, the, the outcome of this was I ended up standing for the local Green Party in the Totnes constituency. Then some of the senior members in the, in the, in the Totnes Green Party decided that um, uh, want, wanted to force me to stand down and not be the candidate. And then this brought down the person from 
head office from the Green Party uh, in London. There was a huge meeting in the hall in uh, uh, Totnes. And the primary reasons were, which now I can smile about, it wasn't so easy at the time, was that A, I was too spiritual, which is quite a nice compliment. And secondly, I was a cult leader. Oh, oh wait, a, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> I told my daughter about this, she said, it's true. <laughs> she said, we studied sociology in school. And when I read it, I realised Gaia House is a, is a cult centre and you're a cult leader. <laughs> well, anyway, don't panic, it's not true, I promise. <laughs> so there was a vote to try to uh, get me off uh, the Green Party. And this other person, whose name I shan't mention, um, wanted to replace me. So there was, a, there was a vote, but only the five people who were absolutely uh, anti-Christopher Titmuss Green Party candidates actually got the vote. Nobody agreed with them. And, uh, and I stood and gloriously completely failed, uh, etc. I just had a letter today of apology. Is that nice? And... Uh, he, he said, um, he very much apologised for all that took place um, in the mid-1980s and um, he's become um, very uh, interested in Buddhism. <laughs> <laughs> and would I c- kindly uh, contact him? <laughs> so I'm going to write back and say, um, I'm sorry, I'm not forgiving you. <laughs> No, no, it's a joke. <laughs> it's an ironic joke. <laughs> so sometimes ha- things, events happen around us. They don't go according to our wishes. They don't go as we would, uh, as we would like. People say things, etc., etc. Uh, et people's rights. People's right to protest. People's right to say what they need to, to say. Maybe true, maybe untrue, maybe partially true, maybe partially un- untrue. Uh, etc. Hearsay and gossip line and inference and claims is all part of the stuff of language, it's all part of human communication there. And all of us to do do attend and to deal with it and try to be as clear with ourselves. Fundamentally, bottom line, does all that goes on in our world, our personal world, our immediate world, does it have the power to stop the friendship? Does it have that power? If it does, the friendship is measurable. If it doesn't, it's immeasurable. And that's the power of the friendship. Sometimes with friendship in life, easily we generate it, we share it, we try to be as open and supportive, whatever. Easily friendship gets misunderstood. Easily. Easily friendship gets uh, interpreted as manipulation. It gets interpreted, I want something from you. All sorts of views and opinions can arise and it would be a great pity if through all those reasons in life and all of us have uh, can think of those kind of reasons, if somehow we kind of withdrew, somehow we forgot the heart, somehow we, we, we started controlling and saying, oh, I can't be friendly. And that takes, I think, with all all, all of us, uh, 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 a lot of practice, a lot of meditation, a lot of awareness. And I think 
most of all actually a lot of trust and the lovely thing about friendship when it's friendship for friendship in all the ways that it might be just to be friends young, old, rich, poor near, far, whoever or whatever but the lovely thing about that uh, friendship it's the quality of the friendship itself which is beautiful it doesn't really matter too much if it's received or not received. It doesn't matter if it's understood or not understood. In 99 uh, out of 100 it's understood and appreciated. Sometimes it isn't. It doesn't matter. Because one hasn't got the gap. That we're not living with this over and against this. That the heartfulness, the warmth itself is the beautiful thing. And it's powerful the great power in life. This uh, response, this uh, exploration of uh, kindness and friendship shows itself in all sorts of situations and sometimes, I'm now getting back to the lecture, I haven't forgotten, sometimes it just happens quite naturally and one hardly knows it. And the incident that comes to my mind was uh, in the monastery and an American lecturer came and he had he was, uh, a rather academic interest in Buddhism and he happened to be in that part of southern Thailand and apparently someone had said to him there was this underfed westerner living alone in a monastery and, uh, would, and would he like to go and meet him at him so he came, he saw the abbot, the abbot sent him over uh, to me and I had to apologise, I said I don't know anything about Buddhism I don't know anything about it at all I'm not here to learn about Buddhism, it doesn't interest me but meditation and practice oh, is something else, I'm really interested in, in that you know, or to use a great, um, would it be metaphor of one of the uh, Asian teachers you know, there's the pod you could call it Buddhism, you know, the, 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 the Buddha images. Yeah, I, I brought this one back actually from uh, uh, Spirit Rock Meditation Center last summer and, uh, on the plane and I put it beside me. So I took out the box because there was lots of empty seats. Who wants to fly to America? And I, I, I put it on the, clear out the box and put it on the seat beside me on the aeroplane and, and put the um, seatbelt across. <laughs> he's still waiting for the vegetarian meal <laughs> anyway so the lecturer came and I said I'm very sorry I d- don't know anything about uh, Buddhism but I've uh, been here a year or two and, and sit and walk mindfully sit mindfully do everything, do everything mindfully and one of the things that he couldn't connect with was in the monasteries, as here too, in, in Gaya House, in places of uh, Dharma practice, all sentient beings are to be respected. Therefore the kindness go, goes in all the directions. What's in the air, as, as, as the texts say, what's in the air, what's on the ground, what's beneath the ground and what's in the water. All, all deserves our respect because we coexist together, we're all in it together, life is in it together. And so within the monastery, maximum uh, concern and support for life. And he thought it was all a little bit uh, uh, 
uh, odd and, and always came up with all the examples what would you do if you know and it's always a favorite the woodworm and the mosquitoes you know and and uh, and if a shark was going to bite your head off, you know, etc. You know, well, there weren't too many sharks in the monastery, I have to add, but anyway, you know, etc. And then one day, I said, just practice. Never mind, never mind, I don't want to, you know, trying to change the view. Just practice, just practice. And practice loving kindness. Just put all the practice together. And he said he was staying for just a few days. One day, I saw the, the toilets were squat toilets, you know, not the uprights and down. One day I saw him kneeling with his head down over the toilet in there. And I thought, oh, God. <laughs> you know, I mean, people have a hard time in retreat and. Why would he be putting his head in the toilet? <laughs> it's unusual kind of mindfulness practice. <laughs> and the and the sweetheart, he's got a little stick, a thin little stick in his hand, and he's got the stick there, there, and he's moving it around in the water. And I walked over him, and I kind of crept over, I looked over his shoulder. And he's trying to rescue an ant. It just made my day. <laughs> and he's got the stick and he rescues the ant. He put it to the side there and got it, got it out. I don't think he realised in just a little while, not deliberately. He didn't say, look, I'll come to this uh, um, 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 monastery and then I'll engage in life-saving activities of ants. <laughs> but some kind of connection, the alienation, the gap, stopped. And the connection was there. He could feel to the position of the ant struggling as it's fallen in the water in the toilet and just lifted it up. And those, without being romantic, without being idealistic about all, 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 these, all of these things, I think it puts existence into another kind of frame. It puts it into another kind of awareness where the truth of existence is revealing itself as interconnectedness. And there's nothing like the heart to confirm it. Nothing like loving kindness and deep friendship and friendliness to, to confirm it.